0: Please listen carefully.
1: G'day. You're listening to City Speak with Greg Van and Stephen Yarwood, a podcast about cities by people who love cities and want you to love your city too.
2: Well, uh, welcome everyone once again to another episode of CitySpeak and uh, once again we're so delighted to have some people to interview here which I think are such important voices in the conversation about urban mobility and I guess uh, people I consider my friends having met them in Vancouver many years ago. Melissa and Chris Bruntlett, uh, welcome along to uh, CitySpeak, so glad that you're able to join us.
1: Very, very happy to be here and to be speaking with you, Greg.
2: This is one of the nice things about doing podcasts, Stephen, isn't it? We get to meet great people from all around the world. It is. We've both made
3: lots of friends around the world, and we're we're going through the process of not only becoming great mates, but introducing ourselves to each other's friends. And uh, uh, not only is it lovely to meet both Melissa and Chris today, but I've also had a chance to read most of, I'm not going to say I've read every single word, uh, read most of uh, their recently written book, Curbing Traffic, which is great. It's very recently written because, of course, that last chapter also makes reference to, to COVID, but uh, um, I don't really want to do too much talking, Greg. Oh, I'd like you to just start throwing some questions at Melissa and Chris because uh, I think they've got a really interesting story to tell and a, an amazing lifestyle that makes me profoundly envious, even though I do live in a beautiful city of Adelaide.
2: So, Chris and Melissa, you know, one of the things I think that I I really find inspiring about the story of what you guys are doing now is where you you came from and where you started. Uh, You know, I met you in Vancouver, I don't know, six or eight years ago when you were doing the Modacity thing as a part-time sort of kind of thing. Could you just talk a little bit about, you know, where you're from, where you grew up, where how did you come to do Modacity and how did you get from doing that to where you are now, living in Delft and writing books about how to do cities a whole lot better?
0: Wow, well, Even we find it inspiring, this story, because, you know, it was never part of the plan when we graduated from university in 2003 as an architect, aspiring architect and fashion designer. If you have told us then that we would be urban mobility authors and experts living and working in the Netherlands, I think we would have, have laughed at you. But it, it's one of those things that uh, living car-free in, in Vancouver and cycling everywhere with young children felt it compelled to start sharing our experiences and start getting involved in a a very passionate conversation that was happening there around reallocation of space and the creation of 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 bike lanes and that you know started as a blog for melissa it started as uh, a photography project for myself on the evenings and weekends, and it, through meeting people like yourself, like Darren Davis in Auckland, like other passionate urbanists, we created this network um, that took us on speaking engagements uh, in, in Australia, New Zealand, and other North American cities, uh, led to the formation of this, uh, this consultancy, Modacity 2014, that was doing communications work in this field. And then ultimately brought us to the Netherlands in, in 2016 to at the time just write a few articles about what Canadian cities could learn from the Dutch.
1: and I think it's I think interesting and, and what we try to remind people when we're, we're talking about what Vancouver did and what countless other cities are doing be, around becoming more uh, friendly for sustainable transport is a lot of our context comes from having grown up in the suburbs of Toronto. So we very much grew up in a very car-dependent, sprawling area. Well, the city we grew up in was called Kitchener, Ontario. And that really has informed not just where we chose to live, having chosen to live in cities or in walkable communities uh, where we could access what we needed, but it's also informed how we approach uh, the message that we put out there is that these are all ideas that we we can aspire to that some cities are putting in place and it's not just a big city thing it can also be done in small communities and so that really always has helped to inform what we do and I think now having uh downsized and moved to Delft we're really trying to communicate that yes this is this idyllic sort of Dutch city but um a lot of the lessons that we've learned about and researched since moving here are really applicable in context to a lot of different places
2: and, and and talk a little bit about how you ended up in delft it's it's another great story i think and one of the reasons i'm delving into this uh is is that i think you know there's plenty of aspiring urbanists out there who want to be part of this conversation and when you look at your journey you know it, it's 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 inspire i hope it will inspire some of those people to to find their path yeah so the the move to um holland i know when i last saw you in person in brisbane about three years ago, you weren't able to tell me, but it was just about a done deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah we uh, well, through the process of writing the first book, building a cycling city, we'd made a lot of uh, a lot of contacts, and one of those contacts was Miriam, Miriam Borssbone, who is the former director of the Dutch Cycling Embassy. And in that conversation, uh, we very dutch and direct said we would like to move to the netherlands we fell in love with it in 2016 and however we can get there we will work to come uh and that turned into a series of conversations one of which was had right before the book came out the first book uh where we basically solidified the deal and she offered chris a position uh as communications manager and uh yeah the rest is sort of <laughs>
0: yeah but that, i think a lot of that was motivated by this post netherlands depression we refer to as a condition when you come back from the Netherlands as a visitor and you suddenly see your city choked with cars with no safe space to walk or cycle. Uh, and you just get angry and depressed about the conditions in your city. And and uh, a lot of people use that post netherlands depression to fight for better conditions in their city. But we had been fighting for the better part of a decade. Uh, and we kind of made this decision, OK, we need to get out for their own sake and sanity and for the sake of our children. If this uh, employment opportunity comes uh, and it did, then then we should use that to move to the Netherlands, but then start helping other cities around the world uh, transfer these ideas from Dutch cities. I,
3: I certainly relate to what you're saying. There are some places you leave and you just really desperately want to go back. And I I, uh, I really respect what you're saying about that choking of cities because you're, you're great storytellers and that's what I enjoyed about the book. Um, things that resonated were, were just even being able to hear birds sing, which is a, a reference that I've made to in terms of future cities and whether it's Cycling or electric mobility and and noise and so the you've got so many references in the book there to being a therapeutic experience um, and and the hearing city and noise and I think that they're lovely stories to tell about what a city can actually look like. I've lived in Saudi Arabia. I've uh, lived in Riyadh. I've walked uh, fifty thousand steps in a day in Riyadh just to prove that it was an absolutely uh, unpleasant, hostile environment. Um, uh, but uh, that's something. Something that I uh, you know I I'd, I'd just encourage people to think about when they uh, uh, considering picking up your book is the storytelling and the feminism is is another really good one too Melissa that I really wanted to ask you about in terms of the experiences you're having but uh, I, I think I've asked about seven questions there
2: I mean I did want to pick up on that that emphasis you have on your family as a central part of what you do but also that mix that you bring in your writing to data and research. And then stories about you and your family and others you know. I think it's a wonderful way of the hearts and minds. Is that what, you know, is that, was that a deliberate thing you think you've got to do both?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think one of our mantras when we were uh, doing the monasticity thing was share the stories, not the statistics. We found that at least for a general audience, a general public, they're not going to be convinced by facts. And and, uh, it's true of everything, housing conversations, uh, other urban planning conversations, politics, but especially in this mobility field, you cannot rationalize a reallocation of road space because intuitively what they feel is there's a war on cars happening. (laughs) But if you can explain to them how they'll benefit in terms of the well-being of their children, in terms of the the pleasant day-to-day experience of being in a a city with fewer cars, Uh, I think you're more likely to bring them along and and change those hearts and minds. That's not to say the statistics don't play a role, and that's why we included those portions in the book, but those are more geared towards policymakers, decision makers. The real kind of anecdotes are, yeah, provide that balance between the wonk and the heart.
1: Yeah, I think for, so book number one really looked a lot more at like the policies and and a few of the statistics in terms of mode share and and really sort of technical. So we always say it's the the how, the first book was the how, and then the second book we decided to go with why. And it was really important with the second book, you know, for, as you mentioned, Stephen, the, you know, the things like the therapeutic city, the noise, and Greg, even with, you know, the family aspects, be it for children, for women, or for uh, anyone as they grow old, is we wanted to make the case that it's beyond just the traffic safety numbers and it's beyond uh, the number of cycle lanes that have been built throughout the country, but more the impact that that has on us as individuals. And so that's why we got into the statistics around how the stress caused by traffic noise and the existence of traffic congestion has a very direct impact on us uh, in terms of our mental health, in terms of our physical health, and also in terms of our social health. So having that mix of data that shows how children that grow up being shuttled around in the backseat of a car have a higher proclivity for increased stress, increased depression, and so on. Or even as we get into elderly years, that being shut away from home and having fewer mobility options increases cases of isolation and, again, therefore, uh, feelings of social anxiety, feelings of depression. These are all things that we don't talk about enough. We're talking about city building and mobility. And for us, it was having moved here and had the experiences that we had. uh, It was really important to try to communicate that as best as we could to really emphasize why it's so important that we're doing this. It's, It's great in terms of obviously improving safety and greening our cities to try to build in more resiliency but at the end of the day um, you know what it means to us as as human beings is is equally if not most important
2: yeah I mean you touch on some of my favorite sort of things about I mean we have to understand ourselves as an animal before we can design cities that that suit us and we spend too much time not doing that but Stephen you started to touch on a few of those key themes and I love the way I feel like as a, you know, completely independent and objective observer, I love the book and I love the way it's uh, structured and, and, and I really love that way you've put it around those themes, the child-friendly city, the connected city, the trusting city and all of those. Stephen mentioned the feminist city. Uh, how did you decide to break it up like that and what are the key pieces, do you think? You know, are there, if there were three that you had to talk about first, you know, in your 15 minutes somewhere, which, which ones would you pick?
1: I think we structured it that way. It was almost, we came up with all these ideas of what we wanted to communicate. But I think when we thought about how, you know, we're talking about the impact on human life, it made sense to begin with our kids and to end with the, the end stages of our, our lives in terms of the chronology of how we live. But I think in in that time, what we've, the focus that we, it's not three, unfortunately it's four, but the four key areas we tend to focus on, uh, first and foremost are always children because I, we we talk about it a lot within this sort of, within our bubble, but I don't think enough people that are making decisions think about had the impact of our city building on our kids. Uh, because there's so much emphasis on cars, we forget that no child can drive until they're 16 at the earliest in most places. So you know, for the first 16 years of their lives, we're forgetting about their experience. Uh, We focus on women because it is increasingly part of the conversation is how our cities are designed not for women, but they're designed for and have been for over a century, really focused on the male experience, not necessarily for bad reasons, but because of just the people that are making the decisions designed based on their own lived experience. And then we look at people living with disabilities because, again, we have a lot of presumptions around how they experience the city without actually asking them what they want. And then also finishing off on as we age and when we reach our elderly years and when we can no longer drive, what does the experience of the city mean for them and how can we make that better? Those are the four key areas we always focus on.
3: Very quickly, I've actually spent nearly five months on crutches having actually had a mountain bike fall and fractured my leg and then had both my ankles reconstructed. So the disability stuff really relates to me. But also, uh, my son is one of those very few uh, children now in Australia, even though we have an incredibly high bicycle, virtually every Australian has a bicycle that they just all happen to be in garages and sheds and have flat tires. Uh, My son is one of those few children that uh, does actually ride to school uh, here in Australia. I I think there's some great integrative messaging there. and, And the story about the freedom of your children uh my son's 12 and he can get a free tram into the city and wander around the city when when i wasn't walking um when i was disabled he went in and got a haircut by himself and he's 12 and he's uh created that that choice around independence and mobility i actually wanted to go to a couple of really interesting terms that you've used i knew that you were long lost friends when i read the word woon earth. now greg do you know what a woon earth is
2: I actually knew before I read the book, but uh, too, I found right. the, the book. It out.
3: Yeah, I last yeah. I last heard that term when I was in university, which was over 30 years ago. So Chris or Melissa, you have to tell uh, tell us what a nerf is because it's just such a great word, but it's also a great space and it's something that we should really all be aspiring to in our communities. It's just that people don't even know.
0: As we admit in the book, Delft was a happy accident to us. We chose to move here because both of our jobs happen to be located here. Uh, And it wasn't until we moved here that we discovered that in the 1960s and 70s, Delft City Hall was a very innovative and experimental place. And they were trying all these different treatments and and, uh, they were experimenting with road typologies. And the Wunnerf was one of those uh, typologies that came out of that experiment process um, and it was actually initiated by a group of residents in a neighborhood not far from us here in the West Quartier who were just tired of the increasing speed and danger of traffic outside their front door the threat that it was posing to their children and so in an act of defiance popped up some uh, concrete barriers and one morning and, and blocked off the traffic entirely and reclaimed that curb space for uh, as a space for social interaction and uh, and for their children to play safely and and uh and Initially, City Hall fought this idea and didn't want to restrict motor traffic, but eventually they learned to embrace it. And they worked with the local technical university here in Delft not to create this Wunnerf idea, uh, which translates to living street. Um, But uh, the idea is not to ban cars entirely, but treat them as guests in this space. So through a a series of very specific engineering measures that is narrowing the street, removing the curb, creating speed tables and a change of texture and making it clear uh, that, uh, that the car is to be, act as the guest in this space uh, suddenly you 're reclaiming that that space outside the front door for people to uh, have social gatherings, have barbecues e- eat communally for children to play, uh, and uh, this is now you know a typology that 's spread all across the Netherlands and countries around the world and and the research has shown that obviously these these spaces increase. The social cohesion of that street, that is the neighbors and friends become closer friends and acquaintances to each other, um, that they uh, have a better sense of pride in their street, they spend more time outside, and and these are all things that we're now uh, losing as a society. Uh, because we prioritise the traffic passing through the street rather than the people that live on the street. Uh, and so that chapter is used as an argument for perhaps flipping those priorities and uh, starting to look at uh, at streets as more than just places to pass through, but actual places for people to,
3: to stay. And if I may, Greg, I want to ask one more question too, because uh, terms like that are so powerful. The other one that I, I've got a bit of a thing about traffic lights. Um, as, a, as a futurist, uh, autonomous, everything going to, happen down the track they're kind of irrelevant anyway moving forward uh, not just for cycling and not for moving people through cities but uh, you know cars aren't going to exist in our future as well but um you talk about big buttons melissa did you want to kind of explain what a big button is because there are some great terms that i think are, can, can be picked up in in a, in a modern conversation around cities
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's a term that a lot of people use. Speaking of, you know, I need to cross the street, I just got to push the beg button. And we don't even think about what that means in terms of what that object is. But that object is literally, whether it's when you're walking or if you're cycling, as we had similar treatments in Vancouver, you're basically begging for permission to access a crossing. Which is, you know, when we think about it, our, our cities, the policies generally are designed with an inverted pyramid with pedestrians at the top, and cars, lorries, you know, public transport further down, down the pyramid. So, you know, pedestrian cyclists, and so on and so forth. And if that's the way we're saying that we're prioritizing traffic, and then we tell people on bicycles and on foot that they need to beg for permission to cross the street. Yeah, we're kind of telling them that, yeah, we've said that you're a priority, but not enough to actually give you the permission to cross the street without having to first ask. So it's, it's this, interesting little device that you know in some cases is, is necessary you know be it a large intersection that normally functions for the flow of traffic and it doesn't have a lot of foot traffic okay then you want to indicate that you're there but yeah the uh, the idea of having to force our vulnerable road users force our children, force the elderly people in wheelchairs or mobility scooters to beg for access to the city is is a really damning statement of how how we approach that and something that we should try to switch as much as possible and you know to be fair here in the Netherlands they do exist in certain places however at most uh, intersections now along with those buttons there's usually sensors built right into you'd be at the approach to the intersection or when you're waiting at the intersection to automatically signal that there is somebody waiting and if we can switch more cities into that sort of treatment this uh, more of a sensor as opposed to making those individuals ask permission then we start to give the rights back to the the vulnerable u- road users, which I think is where the priority should really be.
2: It reminds me of that sort of saying that if you want to know the truth about an intention, you look at the budget, not the policy. And it's a bit like if you want to know the intention of who you're really giving priority in your movement system, look at look at who who is actually getting the privilege in in the conversation, you know, in, in the system. Hey, yeah, one of the things I really liked uh, that you touched on, you know, I get i got an economics degree and. I sort of pretend I know a bit about economics, but the, the Prosperous City one, I think, was just wonderful to see that in there, because people think this is like a, a sort of a social cost that you have to bear as opposed to something that would actually have, you know, an economic benefit for a place.
0: Could would you perhaps drill into that one a little bit more for us? Yeah, I mean, it all comes back to this idea that we've built uh, environments that require uh, a tremendous cost to the user, uh, a piece of machinery that costs ten to twelve thousand uh, dollars per year to own and operate uh, when you consider gas and depreciation and maintenance and parking and all of that, whereas you know the average income in a lot of these places is only thirty or forty thousand dollars, so people are forced to give up a third uh, and as much as a half of their income. Um, just to access the opportunities they need in terms of employment, education, health care, and so on and so forth. So if we can make very smart investments in walking, cycling, and public transport and alleviate that cost to simply moving around the city and accessing the opportunity, then we're allowing more people to make uh, to access those opportunities uh, and creating more prosperity in these regions. And, and uh, there's a lot of research in this field that we delve into that cities are literally holding themselves back back by requiring car ownership, because uh, there is a a percentage of the population that cannot access steady employment because of this, this barrier, this financial barrier that exists. So yeah, this is this is one of many arguments that we make in the book, but I think it it comes down to equity. And and when we're talking about autonomous cars, electric cars, the future that's going to be built around the automobile, we're still leaving out certain segments of the population that do not have the financial means to, to access this mode of transport.
1: I think it's important, too, with that argument that it's, on one hand, it is definitely about forcing people into car ownership in, in order to be able to access that opportunity. But it's also understanding how to prioritize public transportation networks. And so, you know, we talk about the bike train connection or bike public transport, as as we have here. So we, we of course, Delft is one of many cities, <laughs> almost every city in the Netherlands with a very... Robust uh, train station where we have trains with 10 minute headways to get in and out of the city to the neighboring big centers. But we also have parking at tram stops and bus stops and, you know, it it speaks to this idea that there is this important link, but it also is only possible by having a public transport network that recognizes that not everybody travels during peak hours, that some people work shift work. And how are we addressing their needs? Because oftentimes with public transportation, when budgets need to be cut, it cuts services out of the normal peak hours. It cuts service, you know, during the evenings or or what have you. And so when we're talking about people working in healthcare, we talk about people working in factories that work 12-hour shifts. You know, if if we're saying to them, that you have to have a car in order to access your employment opportunity because the headways don't or the, the service hours don't work for you and we don't reach the area that you're going to, we're, we're saying, yeah, your job matters, but not enough to make sure that you have options to get there. And that leads to a phenomenon that is often referred to here as uh, mobility poverty, in terms of the people that have the most means have the most options or excess mobility and the people with the fewest means have the fewest options for transportation.
2: You know, this takes me back this conversation to a meeting that I, w- I was lucky enough to sit in on that uh, in Gordon Price's uh, apartment when you were there, um, Chris, I think, I'm not sure that Melissa made that one, but um, where you were planning out a campaign against that dreadful, you know, referendum for, um, you know, for... a transit money vote by the, the province of uh, BC when they were spending heaps of money on on car, you know, car bridges and things with, without any sort of ask the people. You know, it must be a really sharp contrast for you to be living in a place like Delft compared to even Vancouver, which, you know, most of our other Western cities look at and go, oh, they do a lot of things pretty well.
0: I mean, we write about this in the book, you know, in Vancouver, we lived car light in that we didn't own a car, but we were accessing car share uh, on a near daily basis because there were certain journeys that we couldn't make, uh, especially as we left the municipal uh, boundaries of, of Vancouver itself. But here we've lived completely car free for almost three years now without even driver's licenses because the cycling and the train networks are so comprehensive and convenient and and we are able to join meetings in industrial areas in rural areas and and take kids to baseball games in the the provincial areas all without uh, owning a car because the trains here are just unbelievably it's like a natural national metro system here and that they run so frequently and have such good coverage and then we have the option of, of renting a bike on the other end of the journey so that that extends our range even even further so it's uh it's a pr- quite a liberating experience and i think contrary to what a lot of people would expect is that giving up our driver's license has actually given us more mobility than we've ever had in our lives
2: yeah it's a, it's a great story i know now i know we'll get back to where we started here that your lives are all about your family the The four of you, you and your two children, and you've got a commitment before too long. So we might just start to um, move to the end. Just to finish off, you know, if you get your short radio interview, you know, what are the three key takeaways you might give people, not just about your latest book, but about everything you've learned? throughout the modacity journey and your own personal journeys you know the family's journey are are there some key things that you would say if you want to be an advocate go for it or you know like what do you think i'd be interested in your take uh, because you've had such an interesting trip so far
1: i mean one of the first things that i think of and one of the the takeaways that i mean it was related to the the second book but it comes up a lot working in uh, urban planning and urban mobility is how valuable it is to meet people where they are and actually talk to the people that you're trying to uh, affect change for. I think it was part of what we were trying to do in in Vancouver and in some ways succeeding is trying to create a message that would reach the people that we were trying to influence and talk to them at their level. But even when it comes to engagement, when it comes to planning, policy development, if we're creating policies specifically directed at improving the lives of children or creating greater access for people living with disabilities, if we don't talk to those people, we have no idea what they actually want. We're making assumptions and then we're probably designing in the wrong way. So I think that's the very first thing that at least that's often our approach when we're talking about engagement or policy and design planning is, are you talking to the people that you're working for? And if not, how do we bring them to the table to make sure that we're, we're creating an equitable plan for the future?
0: And then uh, yeah, a message to our fellow advocates. I think. We feel very privileged to be where we are and, and to have gone through the journey that we've gone through, and the, the people we've met in the places we've seen. But it, it, you know, I think all we can really say to them is, you know, use your your passion and and use your positivity as a an articulate and a optimistic voice for for cities. And I think far too often the urbanist conversation comes back to complaining about current conditions and assuming that the whole world is against you. And I think. One thing we found is there is actually a very broad consensus in in most cities in the world for walkable bikeable streets and and better public transport systems uh, and that if you can form these coalitions uh, not just amongst the urbanist community but amongst the public health community and amongst all these other organizations and and means that are all largely fighting for the same the same goal then you really can start making change and and uh, we've seen now you know enough examples in Paris and London and, and other global cities that people will vote again and again for positive change as long as it's it's done in consultation with the community and, and you bring them along for the ride.
1: What would number three be?
0: <laughs> yeah. I reckon I've got that number three. Can I take this, quick? A
3: couple of things. Firstly, I wanted to sort of say we're running out of time, but uh, I'd love to have you guys back because you do make a positive case for the role of electric engines in mobility of cities uh, but scooters and uh, electric mobility is really starting to actually um have some threats as well as some opportunities, and I want to do an episode on the the future of electric engines in cities, not electric cars, uh, but uh, the whole two wheel, three wheel, four wheel. So we'll have another conversation about that another time. Uh, and I actually asked Jan Gill that question 15 years ago about electric engines, and he actually said at the time I hadn't thought about that. And now look at what, what scooters are doing. I wanted to ask you um, when I was Lord Mayor, I was I'm I'm known as the the to put all the bicycle lanes in in Adelaide i uh, made a lot of friends and a lot of enemies uh, a lot of the time people said to me yeah but Adelaide isn't amsterdam and i'm sure you've heard that so and then there's the comment around um, oh putting in cycling infrastructure is social engineering everything is social engineering giving cars domination is social engineering so w- w- what would be your comments around you know it, it it's social engineering or or not everywhere it can be like delft or, or amsterdam
1: I think yeah it's it's an important message that we both emphasize every day in our in our day jobs is that of course no city is other city is Amsterdam or Delft or Rotterdam or or Vancouver or Adelaide but we can all inspire each other and there's all lessons to be learned and ways that we can apply this knowledge in context so everything we do is not about copying and pasting what other cities have done it's about finding the right solutions to achieve similar goals within the context of our own cities so be it looking at road diets that work for a broad boulevard in, uh, let's say, New York City. Inspiration can be drawn from a city like Rotterdam, uh, when, which is what we did in the first book. We drew that comparison of how, you know, one city can inspire another and vice versa. So that's always our message is, is find the inspiration in the message and find a way to adapt that to local context. Uh, And we can start finding solutions that work for everyone.
0: So our city is different is something that we constantly hear in in our day jobs and and in our advocacy on the evenings and weekends. Mm -hmm. And I think, it focuses on the difference that, differences that various cities have. And, and especially when it comes to the Netherlands, there's a lot of misunderstandings. People say, oh, well, the Netherlands is flat or the Netherlands is densely populated or the Netherlands is tiny or the Netherlands has nice weather or the Netherlands are just culturally superior to the rest of the world. And uh, we're always careful to to reinforce those stereotypes because most of them are, are absolutely not true. Uh, you know, the, the the headwinds here cancel out the, the lack of hills. Uh, we've done contextual comparisons For the Randstad region to other metropolitan areas and the the density and and the travel distances are, are very similar. The only thing that's different about Dutch cities is that in the 1970s, they made a very conscious choice to stop building their society and their built environment around the car and have been for the past 50 years. You know, building building cities for people, and and that is really the only difference that matters. So we are now, luckily, through our day jobs, myself at the Dutch Cycling Embassy, Melissa at Mobicon, working for organizations that are helping cities and regions around the world transfer these principles and implement them on their own streets and uh, I think we're we're here to say that it's it's most definitely possible and 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 the Netherlands is now this tremendous uh, resource this this body of best practices that other cities can learn from and and start uh, transferring and adapting these these policies and principles uh, in their own context so it's it's definitely possible there's enough examples now in cities around the world uh, that we should stop using these excuses and start focusing on actually getting stuff done
2: that seems a wonderful place to leave the Conversation uh, with you both it's been wonderful to see you again and thanks so much for sharing your time and knowledge and experience and and I, do, I you know to our people listening Curving Traffic is a great read and you know you've heard Melissa and Chris talk and they kind of write like they talk There's just it's just full of warmth and, and sort of goodwill and good intention but also knowledge and experience so thanks so much and um, hopefully we'll get you back to Australia before too long I might just pass over to you Stephen you might have a couple of closing comments.
3: Yeah, I just wanted to say thank you very much. I also enjoyed the book and I would highly commend it to everyone. As a futurist, I'm often asked uh, to predict the future, but the the whole point is that it's about determining what's possible and what's preferred. Uh, And I think you two are living embodiment of that, that uh, you are the change that you want to see in the world and you've chosen a lifestyle and you've chosen a career that makes you uh, happier, healthier, and, uh, and it's been a rewarding experience, quite clearly. And I think you articulate that not only for yourself, but also for your kids. And that's what we're doing it for. We're doing it for our kids. So thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Stephen and Greg. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure.
0: Let's do this in, in Australia sooner rather than later. Cool. Wouldn't that be